0: I'd like for you to turn to Luke chapter 10 this morning. This church has been given a great gift, a significant and profound gift in the person of the Holy Spirit. He was and is the gift of God's presence with his people. God promised that gift to the prophets ages ago, and the Holy Spirit is the way that that has actually come to fruition. The Holy Spirit was given 2,000 years ago to Pentecost, to the church, and he came to comfort, he came to counsel, he came to convict, he came to guide, among many other things. But one thing we've been enjoying this summer, these last few weeks, a couple of months actually, is that he didn't come empty-handed. He is himself a profound gift, but he did not come empty-handed. He came bearing gifts for each and every single one of his people. He gave a gift, a spiritual gift, maybe even in some cases a combination of spiritual gifts to each and every single one of us, for those of us who are trusting Christ, for the health of the church, for the purpose of the health of the church, for the purpose of the growth of the church, the edification and the building up of one another. He gave those things to us. We're nearing the end of a study on these gifts With this Sunday being considering the spiritual gift, and in some ways we're going to broaden that beyond just the spiritual gift to the Holy Spirit movement, Holy Spirit influence influence movement of mercy. And then next Sunday, we will land this series and finish this series with a study of faith. I think as we've moved through this study this summer, we found that it could be called a series on what church folks should look like. We could call it a series on what church should be like. We could also call it a series on what church folk should call a need. Just as much as we've examined over the course of the summer the way church folk, God's people, should be moving as we've been gifted by the Holy Spirit. We've also, over the course of the summer, you may not realize this, but you've got to. We've had a study on what you in your life should call a need Maybe as you're, churching, as you're searching for a church home or maybe as you're just part of a church family in general, what you should call a real need in your life. I need to be on the receiving end of these spiritual gifts. As I need to be exercising my spiritual gifts, I need to call them a need. Because apparently that's important enough for the Holy Spirit to come and gift them with these things. They should be important enough that I call them real needs. So this Sunday, we consider the spiritual gift of mercy. We don't have a whole lot to work with in terms of the spiritual gift. To be honest with you, it's only mentioned in Romans 12, along with a handful of others, as a spiritual gift. There's no clues there as to what it is other than the character of how it should be exercised. That those are each, or the one who exercises, or who does acts of mercy, should do it cheerfully. Not a lot to work with there, but we've got a lot of other Bible. And we've got the Holy Spirit, this gift that's been given to us to counsel us and guide us to some other places. So this week, he's guided us, as you'll find in these next few minutes, to a parable. It's where we're going to spend our entire morning. And it's a beauty. Luke chapter 10 is a parable, a familiar parable to many of you likely, of the Good Samaritan. The title isn't in the Greek text. In my Bible, right above verse 25, it says the parable of the good Samaritan in italicized bold print. You need to know that that's not in the original Greek. That's an insertion for us to kind of help us find our place in our Bibles and in a chapter so you just don't have gobs of text. You can look and go, okay, there's the parable. It's not called the good Samaritan in the original Greek. It's an insertion there, and it's a traditional insertion. And interestingly enough, there's nothing in this parable or the context that identifies this person that we're going to be taking a really close look at as good. It's just an old-fashioned reference to this parable. If we wanted to really give it a name that comes from the story, we might call it what Jesus called him as compassionate. The compassionate Samaritan, it could be called. And so later on in the parable, you'll find too that he's referred to as the merciful one. So we might call him the merciful Samaritan. So I lean toward one of the two of those this morning, and probably from this point on of calling it the story of the compassionate Samaritan, or the merciful Samaritan. And the two of those words might help us understand why, how we're going to use those words. Not quite interchangeably, but compassion, you might Have a sense, uh, just a given sense of what compassion means. Mercy is compassion that acts. That's how I want you to think about mercy for the rest of this morning. It's acting compassion. It's not just an emotion. Because compassion could be just an emotion. Mercy, though, is compassion that takes some action. So let's climb into this parable and see what we can learn. Beginning in verse 25. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, let me acquaint you with some context here. We want to get to know this lawyer. Lawyers in this day and age were not lawyers as we know them. Lawyers as we know them study uh, U.S. law, Texas law. They study a judicial system that is separate from what they would have considered. um, For them, the religious system and the judicial system were one and the same. Let me put it to you that way. Their law books was the Mosaic law. So a lawyer in that day and age would be a guy who's given his life and his profession to studying and making sense of and making determinations or judgments from Mosaic law. This guy, this student of Mosaic law asks Jesus how he might inherit eternal life with the motive, it says clearly there, to put him to the test. You might imagine this student of the law had some presumptions before he came to Jesus to ask this question. As a student and a teacher and a guide in the law, he would probably suppose that obedience to the law would result in eternal life and salvation. We might expect that he had that underlying thought as he came to Jesus. Yet he comes to Jesus asking that very question. We know, of course, that he wanted to put Jesus to the test but maybe he came because secretly he wondered about the disconnect between what he studied and what he gave counsel in and what he guided in and what his life actually looked like. We don't know that from the parable. Jesus doesn't give us those details, but we might wonder if this student of the law didn't see the wonderful or not wonderfully terrible disconnect between what he studied and what he's living Maybe he realized that though a scholar and a student of the law, that just the study of it doesn't make perfect obedience to it. Wouldn't that be nice? Be like the study of medicine would make you well. Wouldn't that be cool? Some of you that are sick, that are struggling with things, if you just studied some medicine, went online, WebMD, and all of a sudden, Eureka, you're healed. And wouldn't it be amazing if the study of the law worked that way? So maybe he's asking... Because he was hoping there might be some sort of solution to the disparity between what he read and what he lived. Maybe then again, maybe he just wants to debate with Jesus. We know that he stands up, that he's going to put Jesus to the test. Maybe he wants to debate with Jesus and find out what sort of savior he's supposed to be. For in this day and age, when they referred to eternal life and they asked the question about eternal life, they're not talking so much about their personal salvation. They're talking about how they might step into God's return to kingdom on earth or reestablishing his kingdom on earth. So he may be asking the question and quizzing Jesus on how are you going to be that kind of savior? How on earth, he's wondering maybe how Jesus was going to accomplish God's kingdom restored on earth. So he asks the question and Jesus answers beautifully a question with a question. Well then, lawyer, how do you read it? And the lawyer answers the words that we just read. We'll read them again just to see specifically what he says. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. I'll put those in my words. I'll put his response in my words. It's not to be equated with scripture, not even close. It's just Ben's paraphrase. Well, Jesus, my read on eternal life is that it's for those who are obedient to the double love command, to love God and to love your neighbor. Sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? Especially when you give it a little quirky name like that, double love command. Now that again, that's my term. But he went right to that double love command and made a beeline to that summation of the law, to love God and to love people, that's the way we would experience eternal life. It sounds easy enough. It's easy enough to say it's easy enough to read. And if you put it like that and you never stop to really examine how you're doing with those things, you might actually, like this guy, feel pretty justified in that. Like you're going to quiz Jesus on how, on what he thinks, because you feel like you're doing pretty good. I read an article this week that I had to laugh about. As He had some comments about First Corinthians 13, and he made the point in the article that every time he hears that read at a wedding, he has to laugh. He doesn't laugh out loud, I don't guess, or he probably wouldn't be asked to another wedding, but (laughs) he snickers because here, 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter, the love chapter is read at so many weddings, and ironically, love in marriage doesn't work out the way it's read there. You know, it says there, love never fails. It says some other things, it says, um, love is patient and kind. Love is, doesn't envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love ins, doesn't insist on its own way. Love isn't irritable and resentful. But really in marriage, if we're going to be really honest, like maybe this lawyer should have been with the law, it might read this way. Love is sometimes patient and kind. Love sometimes doesn't envy or boast. Love is usually maybe not arrogant or rude. Love usually insists on its own way. Anybody else married in here? right? I mean, we could be really honest like we'd hope this guy would be. Love, time, love is sometimes irritable and resentful. Thankfully, 1 Corinthians 13 is not about anything other than God's perfect and beautiful love for us, for his people. We might hope that this lawyer would be like somebody who's going to read 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding. Let's really get real. If he's studying the law, we would hope that we would think that he would he'd be, he'd be humbled by a study of the law. But if we take this passage at face value, at what Jesus tells us of this imaginary, well, he's, the lawyer's not imaginary. We hadn't got to the imaginary story yet. This guy wishes to justify himself by saying these words. Well then, Jesus, who is my neighbor? He shared the double love command and his maybe his supposition, that's the way that you inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly and says, well then, Jesus, hoping to justify himself, who is my neighbor? How in the wide world of sports this guy hopes to justify himself with this response is baffling at first. But then you start thinking about it and you can imagine, you can climb into this guy's skin for a little bit and think about how he might justify himself with this question, well then, Jesus, who is my neighbor? I can't help but wonder if he lived in a nice, tidy little Jewish neighborhood and he had nice tidy little jewish neighbors with clean parted clean noses and parted hair and they just were perfect jewish neighbors and it was really easy to be a good neighbor to those guys when they went out of town he watched their houses for him i mean he's like mm. he's like neighborhood watch i'm a good neighbor Hoping to justify himself, he's asking Jesus questions that maybe were prompted by the thought that, hey, when, when my trash can is out at the street and my neighbor's trash can is out at the street and the trash has already come, I get their trash can too. <laughs> Such a good neighbor. Man, sometimes when they're out of town, I get their mail too. You have to wonder, is he thinking that he's justifying himself because he's a good neighbor to his nice, tidy Jewish neighbors and his nice, tidy Jewish neighborhood. We don't know the details, but we might suppose that's the way he thinks he's justifying himself. He must have felt pretty good about himself to ask that question in order to justify himself. So let's see where Jesus goes. Jesus' response to a guy wanting to justify himself with safe neighboring. Let's look in verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Jesus answers this man's question with this story, a beautifully simple but yet shocking story of four fellows. You're going to see in a moment how this unfolds, why it's shocking. He introduces the first man. We don't know the uh, ethnicity of this man, but we might suppose, since he doesn't say specifically he's a Samaritan, like he does later the Samaritan, he doesn't say anything about his ethnicity. We would suppose we're talking about a Jewish man at this point. It's a fair supposition, the fact that he didn't identify him as some different ethnicity. Leaving leaving it unsaid unsaid suggests he's a Jew. We might suppose also that he's this imaginary man in this story, in this parable, is a Jewish merchant. He's telling a story about something that would have been realistically experienced in that day and age. And realistic experience would be a Jewish merchant traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho to do business. He would have to be some sort of man that has some sort of means to have something worth stealing. So we might suppose it's a Jewish merchant. And from this point on in the story, we'll just suppose that and just consider that. Traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho apparently was something worth robbing. This was notoriously a dangerous route. Jerusalem to Jericho. According to Josephus, an ancient historian, around the time that Jesus told this parable, Herod had let 40,000 Jewish workers go who had been working on Herod's temple. So you've got this glut of 40,000 Jewish workers who are now unemployed, and many of which they believe became what they called highwaymen. This sounds like a Western movie, doesn't it? Highwaymen. That their job, essentially, their profession had become to rob people on these roads leading in and out of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous 40,000 Jews out of work overnight, resulting in what we believe to be a glut of highwaymen. So this Jewish merchant travels this dangerous road, and he's mugged, and he's robbed, and he's beaten and left for dead by some highwaymen. There's the first guy. The second guy then comes along, a priest Coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, we may suspect that this priest would travel that route having done his duties in the temple. Maybe they served a shift sort of routine, which is not uncommon to that time period. Maybe he lived in Jericho or had family in Jericho. It's a very realistic story that Jesus is telling where they can imagine a priest coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, likely having done his religious duties as a priest there in the temple. We might suppose that this priest had been about God's work at the temple, and he may have been kicking down the road thinking about God's wonderful truths as he walked from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he sees sees the guy number one in the ditch, bloodied, beaten, stripped, half dead. You might imagine the moment that he sees what looks like a body, Maybe you've had that experience where you see something that's just out of order, out of sorts. That I'm, what I'm seeing here, what I'm catching in my periphery shouldn't be here. We might imagine that moment where he sees that out of the corner of his eye. Maybe he hears some moaning. The priest likely sees some blood. Maybe there's blood on the road. Likely sees some blood on the man surely, whatever he sees or doesn't see, surely he understands this is a man, a human being in need. And what does he do? He crosses to the other side and passes on by. Sometime later, a Levite passes next. Let me explain to you the difference between a priest and a Levite. Priests would have been a subset of the Levites. Okay, Levites aren't a subset of the priests. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Levites served in the service of the tabernacle and temple, but they may not have served in the strictest sense as priests. But we could and should call them very religious, and we could also call them part of the religious elite along with the priests, a group of the halves, we might say. A Levite might work in the service of the temple, yet not serve as a priest So we're talking about a religious man of means. He has a job, likely in the temple, and he likely knows God and his law, like the lawyer who asked the question in the first place. He would have been well-versed, along with the priest, in God's law. He sees man number one in the ditch, stripped and beaten and left for dead, and yet he, like the priest, passes by on the other side of the road, unwilling to help or even get close to man number one as I was studying this I couldn't help but think of the James Taylor song about the walking man the walking man just walks on by for those of y'all that know James Taylor you can just play that in your head that's what these guys are doing just walk on by walk on by we might consider these guys for a minute we might consider and ask the question why might these guys have passed by was Jesus telling a story about two men that were just being hateful And ugly that just didn't care about other people? Or might they have had a good reason? Consider this for a moment. The lawyer that started this whole conversation in the first place would have known full well why a priest and a Levite might pass by a beaten and stripped man who's left half dead in a ditch. He may have looked whole dead. And touching a dead person or an unclean person even would result in the one who touches them being unclean for a period of time. If they touched a dead man, they would be unclean for a week. And in some certain cases, I was reading that they may have to actually provide a sacrificed red heifer if they touch something unclean enough. So consider for a moment, if your job is to work in the temple... And you're a priest or your job is to work in the service of the temple as a Levite and you touch something dead or something unclean, you might be out of work for a period of time. There might be a term for that and it's called unemployed. You might think about that for a minute and kind of at least understand how these guys might have landed there. Were they just being hateful or were they just being good stewards with their jobs and just being wise and shrewd and careful They've got families to provide for. They couldn't maybe consider touching a dead person and end up being out of a job. So then dude number four comes strolling up. We've met three so far. The first guy's in the ditch, likely, maybe, we can imagine, a Jewish merchant. The second guy is a priest. The third guy is a Levite. And now dude number four comes strolling up. At this point in the story, it's likely that the lawyers and the others listening are expecting a certain person. At this point in the story, it's almost like there's this blank left there. And everybody there likely would have been imagining the same person to be plugged into that blank. Now, that's not who Jesus shares. Let me just tell you that. But likely the person they're imagining to be plugged into that blank would have been a Jewish peasant. See, a little bit of context. I've referred to this a little bit about the Jewish haves and the Jewish elite or the religious elite, I should say. Those were the haves and the have-nots were the Jewish peasants. And there was a disparity and discord between the two of them. I mean, the prophets had been barking about that for hundreds of years, how how the poor had not been cared for. So everybody there likely would have been thinking it would be so fitting for Jesus to introduce a Jewish peasant here, to come along, to take his meager wares, his meager amount of money and the time, barely have any time because he has to work so hard and to spend it helping this man in the ditch. It would have been a fitting insert into that blank. A parable about caring for the poor would be a fitting message given the barking of the prophets. We might expect that Jewish peasant to come along, take the time and spend the money to care for another Jew that's down and out The poor Jews in the crowd would have said, man, finally, now there's a great story. You tell them, Jesus. And then maybe the lawyer would have rolled his eyes going, okay, here's another one of those stories trying to make us feel guilty about the disconnect between the haves and the have-nots in the Jewish system. But instead, there's someone else introduced and filled into that blank. Let's look at verse 33 and see. You know the title of the story, so you know who it is. But let's see what he says. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Samaritans were in some ways more vile than straight-up Gentiles to a Jew. Samaritans, the way they became Samaritans, that's the, the, their identity, actually the, what their heritage came from when the northern kingdom was exiled to Assyria. Some of the Israelites in the northern kingdom did not make the journey or weren't exiled. They were left in the northern kingdom. Meanwhile, some of the Assyrians settled the northern kingdom. And then the Assyrians that settled the northern kingdom and the Jews that stayed there intermarried. And that product of their intermarriage is what they called Samaritans. This would have been what the Jews called a mutt an unclean mutt, and worse even than what they might consider a Gentile. So let's see what happens next. Let's see what this mutt does in verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This guy, this unclean guy, this unsavory guy, this surprise and controversial insertion into the story comes to the aid of the beaten and bruised and stripped guy number one in the ditch. First of all, he didn't pass by like James Taylor sings. Like the priest and the Levite did. He stopped and he stooped and he touched the man and he touched the man and he touched him. The Samaritans had cleansing rules and unclean and clean rules as well. But yet he touched the man in this story and he treated him with oil and wine to cleanse and condition his wounds. He placed him on his own donkey and I guess walked. He walked while this beaten, bruised, half stripped, half conscious man is riding on his donkey. He walked. And then he takes them the rest of the way to an inn and he pays the expense to stay in the inn with him while he finances the guy's stay in the inn. And he tends to him and he tends to his wounds and he tends to his care. And then when he has to go, he leaves money with the innkeeper for future care. And then he leaves with a promise. I'll be back. And I'll be back to pay the rest of the bill, whatever it might be, to care for this stranger. It's likely that the hearers at this point were about as shocked as they could possibly have been. This was a truly radical story. And it's no wonder that they were trying to kill Jesus telling stories like this. No wonder. Let's see what happens next in verses 36 and 37. He turns to the lawyer. You can imagine that pregnant moment. He shared this story. Some people were sweating. Some people are shuffling their feet. You can imagine the uncomfort in the crowd discomfort he turns to the the lawyer and he asked the lawyer which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers and the lawyer says the one who showed him mercy acting compassion and jesus said to him just the simple words you go and do likewise Jesus asked the lawyer who really, instead of dealing with the question that the lawyer asked in the first place of who is my neighbor, he really in some ways answered over the course of this story, what does it mean to be neighborly? And he asks the lawyer after he tells the story, who was the neighbor of the three? Who was the neighborly one among the three? And the lawyer then showing just how vile Samaritans were to them, can't even say the words. Well, the Samaritan, this is like Fonzie who couldn't say, I'm sorry, I can't say it. He says, well, the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, you are correct. Now go and do likewise. I couldn't imagine a better visual this morning than this controversial story. And I would offer three applications for us. Three applications for us to consider. First. It's a given that the Jews should have tended to the Jewish merchant. It's a given that Jews should care for Jews. The fact that he didn't include a Jewish peasant in the story is a huge slap in the face. A massive slap in the face to the lawyer and any self-respecting Jew standing there at the moment any Jew hoping to justify himself by being neighborly and merciful to God's people only. It's a slap in the face. It's a given that God's people should show mercy to one another in our hours of need. Of course we should do that. Of course we should get in the ditch when one of us is beaten and unconscious. Of course we've got that for one another. But then there's a problem in our context that we've been dealing with over the course of the summer. The only problem is that we sometimes and maybe often don't God's people should have gobs of mercy and compassion for one another. It should be a complete given. But the problem in our context is sometimes we are the least authentic with those we do church with. And sometimes we are the least merciful with our brothers and sisters in faith. And sometimes we give our brothers and sisters in faith the least bit of margin and grace and mercy and give those to strangers and workmates. While God's people get our last and our least. Man, have you ever experienced this at home? Let's be real honest. Dads, any of you ever talk to your children like they're a piece of trash? Like they're little pieces of trash and feel terrible about it? Talk to your children like you wouldn't talk to a stranger. You'd be more decent to a stranger than you are to your own children. Guys, any of you ever through frustration at work, come home and take that frustration out on your wife and talk to your wife like she's a piece of trash and then save the civility for the people who made you frustrated at work? Man, we can do it in families and we can do it in churches where the people that are closest to us, we just say to one another, well, you're stuck with me, just like we do in a family. Well, you're stuck with me. They're not stuck with me, I get fired. They're not stuck with me, I I might get fired. They might break off that relationship, but you and I, we're married, so deal with it. Man, it ought to be a given that God's people and God's families, we get our first and our best. It's a given that those in your house and in God's house should get the cream of mercy and compassion with one another. Man, that's what we've been talking about all summer with spiritual gifts. Those are for one another. That's for us. You've got something that the Holy Spirit gave you for one another in here. And it shouldn't be an afterthought. It ought to be a given that that's your first and your best. But man, God tells us to love not just our friends and family, but also our enemies. Here's where it gets hard for me. Because even the most difficult among y'all, honestly, is really pretty easy to love. I mean, I, I love I, even the most difficult. I won't call any names. I'm just telling you, man, I even love the most difficult among you. But let's start talking about some strangers now. Let's even start talking about something really hard like enemies. Francis Schaeffer said Christians are not to love their believing brothers to the exclusion of their non-believing fellow men. That is ugly, he says. We are to have the example of the good Samaritan consciously in mind at all times. Times. This is where we move from talking about spiritual gifts, where of course we give our first and our best to one another, to okay, what do we do with everything else? What do we do with Holy Spirit influenced mercy in Greenville or in Dallas or wherever we might go this week? What do we do with that? That leads to my second point this morning. We do well to think and move like the Samaritan, both in and out of the church. We do well to move like the Samaritan. He's a model of compassion and mercy. And he's shedding Samaritan light on the spiritual gift of mercy as it's given to the church, to one another. But also on Holy Spirit influenced mercy as it's carried into the world and into dark places. Notice that this Samaritan didn't ask a bunch of questions. He didn't scrutinize this guy in the ditch a lot. You can imagine that he pulls up and says, well, what'd you do to get yourself in that fix? You must have not been carrying your sidearm. <laughs> I'm just imagine, didn't you have a CHL like the rest of us? You're you walking around in the middle of the night or walking around this dangerous road by yourself well, you're pretty stupid. So maybe you deserve to be in that ditch. Has ever happened to you before? Is this a first time, first offense? You can imagine the kind of questions that he might have had, but apparently from this account, now Jesus doesn't give us any details, but I don't see a single question in there. He doesn't scrutinize the guy in the ditch. He just sees a human being in the ditch. We might learn a lesson from the Samaritan. I don't recall a single question. He didn't even have access to the storyline. He might have supposed that this is a Jewish merchant that had something worth stealing, the victim of robbery, but all we know for sure is he saw another human being in need and he stooped and he stopped and he helped, period. Man, his compassion acted. I liked what I uh, read something that Martin Luther said about this parable. Excuse me, Martin Luther King, I should qualify. Big difference by a couple thousand years. <laughs> Martin Luther King said about this parable, He said, the priest and the Levite saw the man and asked, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Samaritan asked instead, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Man, that's the question God's people ought to be asking. That ought to be our go-to question. Instead of trying to figure out how we might use God's law or God's ways or... One reason or another not to stop and stoop and help. Man, there's a great lesson to be learned from this guy. He was inconvenienced as surely he had things to do and places to be. Don't we all? I mean, I got lots of stuff to do all the time. I'm hopping 100 miles an hour. Let's go. Let's get it done. I got all kind of stuff I want to fit in this day. I have a to-do list and I keep in my phone. And it's so satisfying when you just click those things off and you see somebody lying in the ditch, man. I got stuff to do. (laughs) He was inconvenienced. And it was expensive. And surely he had bills to pay and money to save and stuff to fix. And then there's that new thing that he wanted. Right? Samaritans can want new new things too, right? Samaritans have bills to pay. Samaritans have things to fix. Don't we all? And then there's, of course, the time. It was time-consuming. And surely he had tons of stuff to do and a schedule driving him from moment to moment. And his iPhone beeping at him every few minutes about all the things that he's got to accomplish over the course of the day. And all the things that are coming up the next few days reminding him what he needs to do. Don't we all? But yet he stopped and he stooped and he helped at great cost. And Jesus said simply, go and do likewise. Be compassionate, be merciful to your fellow man, period. I couldn't help but think about a discourse from our Lord in Matthew 25. Listen to this passage. If You can jot this down. If you're one of those who just has to see it, turn there. But I encourage you just to listen here for a moment. Just let this hit you. Let what I'm about to read hit you. Matthew chapter 25. Verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. We're talking about a very important moment. Would you agree? Some of you have read this before. You've heard this before. This is one of those things that should make your heart race, and you should swallow hard because of what's unfolding right here. Because it's not a, a fairy tale. It's going to happen. We'll see what happens next. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. So y'all sat in the right place this morning. <laughs> y'all, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let it hit you, though. Goats over here. Sheep over here. And let's see what he says, what he says next as to why. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Remember, that's the question that the lawyer asked in the beginning. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. It doesn't say you understood propitiation. Stay seated. Good job. It doesn't say you understood the nuances of baptism and Lord's Supper. It doesn't say you understood the roles of de- deacons and elders. It doesn't say you knew the, the books of the Bible in order and could sing that little song. Isn't there a little song that goes with that? There should be if there isn't. Yeah, There is. There is. It doesn't say that your Bibles were all marked up. So sit over here on my right. It just says, man, when I was in a ditch, you tended to me. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was sick, you visited me. You cared for me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Man, let that story hit you for a minute. I'm just going to tell you right now, I am masterful at using stewardship as a reason not to help somebody in need. Now, I want to be real careful here. There are occasions where you can be enabling someone to do something really stupid and just keep doing it. To land in the ditch over and over and over and over again of their self-inflicted ditchdom. We, don't, we shouldn't be party to that. But we shouldn't work real hard at using stewardship and those kind of questions as a reason not to help a human being who's in the ditch. That's what the priest and the Levi did. They had apparently had pretty good reason. They use God's law as a reason not to stop and stoop and help. Do you think that's the intention of God's law? Apparently not. Jesus said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Man, please let that hit you this morning. And the third thing this morning this will, this will be our supper preparation. Don't shuffle, because I said that either. Just be thinking about the supper. We're moving into that portion of our morning, and I want this to be what you're thinking about in these next few minutes. As we show mercy to others in the house of God, especially, again, that's a given, but also to those outside, as we have opportunity, we illustrate the good news to the world We illustrate the good news to one another as we show mercy to one another and compassion that acts. And we herald through our actions the message to the world. In the Greek Old Testament, I was studying this word this week, this word mercy. Again, I told you we didn't have a ton to go on. So I'm studying the Greek as it was used in the Old Testament. There's a version of the Old Testament in Greek that's called the Septuagint. And I'm studying in the Septuagint where that word is that is is used in the New Testament for for mercy, was used. And the places where I found it used and translated, it was translated from a Hebrew word, the word hesed. If I'm going to say it like a Jew, it would be hesed. You guys get spit on up there. Hesed. That word means loyal, relentless love. And that word is used of the kind of love that God hasn't had for his people. Loyal, relentless love. That's what's translated as mercy. So if we're going to move in a way that is merciful toward those inside and outside, we are putting on display God's hessid, loyal love, his relentless love, the love, compassion, and mercy that God showed his people when they found themselves in a ditch over and over and over again. Have you read your Old Testament's? God has shown us this story over. It should be so familiar to us as we read it, go, oh, God's great at at, at pulling people out of the ditch. He's done it for humankind. He's done it for Israel over and over again. Just a few months ago, we together considered and savored this passage in Ephesians. Listen, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and in the ditch, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It ought to be a familiar story to us. So as we show acting compassion and mercy To one another and to others, we show the hurting and those watching what God has done for us. He's been relentlessly loving toward us at great cost. Would you agree? (laughs) At great cost. His mercy climbed down into our ditch as He came to earth. He stopped and he stooped. His mercy touched us with human hands as God the Son took on flesh. And he got really bloody as he dealt with our wounds by taking wounds of his own. And he bound our wounds with sacrificial wine and oil. And he even went beyond that to heal them by his own stripes. And then on top of that, he purchased and prepared a place for us. And he paid the bill in advance. At the front desk, it reads, paid in full for you and for me. And then lastly, like the compassionate Samaritan, he promised to return. What a great story. What a great God. What a great Savior. Let's enjoy our compassionate Savior together as we distribute the elements.